Good morning, Linworth. He is risen. Let's go ahead and stand.
morning from Mark 16. And just so you know, the title of this chapter is Jesus Has Risen. Amen. Just as he said he would. All right. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women ran out and they fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. What an amazing experience.
you can release your kids to their classes and then uh, the rest of you, you can take a seat. Well, good morning. Happy Easter, and never get tired of saying this, he is risen. Yeah. Somebody's happy, okay. 
Hey, a little bit of history here. Uh, by name, my name is uh, Rich. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the family pastor. And uh, but a little history on where that Easter greeting came from. Uh, do you know where we get it from in the Bible? Good. Okay. <laughs> Luke 24, 34, where it says, The Lord has risen indeed. And so we put that together, and that's uh, uh, where that comes from scripturally. But there's a custom seems to have originated in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and apparently they have this tradition that Mary apparently seems to, okay, you guys got that, uh, that Mary Magdalene uh, gave the Paschal greeting, which is Easter greeting, to Emperor Tiberius in AD 37. And uh, apparently also he is risen, was spoken at Augustine's baptism on Easter uh, Eve on AD 387. So a little bit of history for you on that. But uh, I want to welcome you here, and then for those that are watching online too, also happy Easter, and glad that you could join us. If this is a first Sunday with us, I suspect there's some people with uh, family here, and uh, going to go to the service, and they get together and eat a lot of good food. We want to welcome you, and glad that you could uh, spend your Easter morning uh, with us. If you are a visitor, we want to invite you to our welcome desk, where we have a table actually in the lobby. We have a little gift for you. It has some information about the church. It has a really cool coffee mug for you. Um, but we also ask that um, you pull out a Connect card, which is right in front of you, or on our Bible app, where a lot of the information and the announcements are. And if you could fill that out and just drop it off in one of the boxes on your way out, we'd appreciate it. Just work to, uh, mark it if you're a first-time visitor. Um, on there. So let's go ahead and we're just going to, we have a couple of announcements, perhaps, there we go, if this thing works. Um, but three, three just announcements for uh, this morning. The first one is we are having a landscaping work day because it is spring and the flowers are coming up. And if the flowers are coming up, what else is coming up? Weeds, yes, okay. So uh, we're going to spruce things up and it's a family uh, time, the whole family can come, we'll have some snacks there. And so uh, we just invite you out, and that'll be April 23rd from 8 to 12 p.m. I think it'll be a fun afternoon. Hopefully we'll have some beautiful weather like we do today. And then uh, something neat coming up here on April 29th from 6.30 to 8.30, the Elementary Girls Fellowship Night. And so we're inviting elementary uh, age girls to join a night of games and prayer and a, a devotional, and it's grades 1 to 5. And so also... Um, if you talk to your children, if they're back in the, the center now, tell them about this. They can invite their friends. We'd love to have their friends come to this also. So um, more information is in the Bible app, um, a contact person, or you can write Girls Fellowship Night on the Connect card, and we'll know that you'll be uh, coming and uh, if we need to get a hold of you. And then finally, for our leadership team here, which involves our life group and ministry leaders, we get together uh, periodically, and we're getting together on May 2nd from 7 to 9. And so put that on your calendars, and uh, we'll see you on that evening, May 2nd, 7 to 9. All right, we're going to work into our message now. Pastor Chris is going to come up. Good morning. Good morning. We have been at it since about uh, 6.45, so if I falter, the notes are all just right here. So... Somebody who's a good reader, just come on up and uh, come on up and read it. So, let's get to this. Um, this is about the 22nd Easter message that I've given, and I, it's, everyone, it just does not grow old at all. And I want to thank you for entrusting me with this. 
that this morning's message is called Power Without Comparison. And let me start by sharing a book summary by a Washington Post columnist and author David Brooks. He wrote a book called The Social Animal. And in the book, he summarizes vast amounts of social science research by stating that information programs alone are not very effective in changing behavior. He writes this, both reason and will are obviously important in making moral decisions and exercising self-control. But neither of these character models has proven very effective. You can tell people not to eat the french fry, right? You can give pamphlets about the risk of obesity. You can deliver sermons urging them to exercise self-control and not eat the fry, right? And in their non-hungry state, most people will not eat. But when their hungry self arises, their well-intentioned self fades and they eat the French fry. Most diets fail because the conscious forces of reason and will are simply not powerful enough to consistently subdue unconscious urges. The evidence suggests that reason and will are like muscles and not particularly powerful muscles. In some cases and in the right circumstances, they can resist temptation and control the impulses. But in many cases, they are too weak to impose self-discipline by themselves. In many cases, self-delusion takes control. Now, has that ever been your experience? Right? I, I know that it has been mine. Reason. I know what is right. But I still eat the fries. My will. I want to do what is right. But my iron resolve melts like wax when I smell the fries. Reason and will sometimes stand powerless beneath temptation. And this powerlessness, right now we're joking a little bit, but, but more seriously, this powerlessness can steal the joy from our lives. It disrupts our relationships and undercuts our dreams. And in those rare moments when the light bulb does go on and we take ownership of our decisions and we keenly feel the resulting dissatisfaction, we find we are motivated to change, but the prevailing question is, where is the power to change? Now, when we read the New Testament written one generation after Jesus, we find that David Brooks was echoing something the Apostle Paul affirmed 2,000 years ago, that we need a power outside of ourselves to change. Let's see what Paul wrote. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. If uh, you're using a Bible there at your seat, it's page 976. I'm going to read it from a slightly different version, but will you stand as we read God's Word? I'm going to begin at verse 15. Paul wrote this. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And now Paul is going to say his prayer, or write his prayer here. 
I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly realms. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, make this word real to us. We need your spirit to help us to see and to understand the spiritual world around us. And we confess our blindness. We can't see without your help. And we confess that we've often strayed, that we have often regarded your steps into our lives as an unwanted intrusion. We confess, Lord, that this has deadened our hearts to your immeasurable love. So awaken us this morning. Turn us from yourselves to you, to all that you are, to all that you have for us. We believe you are enough for all we need. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, you can take a seat. Now, as I studied this passage this morning, I found four questions that begged to be answered. Here's the first one that pops in this, and that is, is that what kind of power is available to us? Look closely at verse 19. It is an incomparably great power, meaning that there are no categories from our experience to compare it to. What is the most powerful thing, you know, just think a moment. What is the most powerful thing that you know? Popular Mechanics, which is in love with power, published an article called The 20 Most Powerful Things on the Planet. I'm not going to mention every one, but a few of these will help us think about power on a different scale. Now, they go from 1 to 20 without reference to which one, 1 or 20, is the most powerful. Now, here's number three. Take a look at this thing. Anybody know what this is? I had never seen it or heard from it. It is the Navy's electromagnetic rail gun. And it shoots bullets at 5,000 miles per hour. And it does not need gunpowder. It accelerates to 5,000 miles per hour in 0.01 seconds and uses a simple and enormous charge, requires no explosives, and only one man or woman to load and fire. It's pretty powerful. Here's number five. This is the biggest dam in the world. The Three Gorges Dam in Sandalping, China, is 607 feet tall. And get this, 1.4 miles wide. Taller than the Washington Monument and several thousand feet longer than the Brooklyn Bridge. Every day it can generate enough power to run Orlando for two weeks. Here's number seven, one that you'll certainly enjoy. This is the hottest pepper apparently in the world. Now I know when I shared this this morning, there were some in the audience that probably went out and bought one, just to test it. 
This is South Carolina's Carolina Reaper. That, that tells you everything. And as a heat that has been described as nothing but pain and like a white hot ball of nickel implanted just above your stomach. Most people who try the pepper get uncontrollable hiccups. The unlucky ones throw up. The slightly more lucky ones just dry heaves. Here's number 15. The laser that can melt a car engine from a mile away. The Athena laser, it's called, in a demo, burned a hole through a hood and engine of a small truck more than a mile away. The power comes from multiple lasers combined into a single beam, a set that makes the laser more efficient and less likely to malfunction. Athena requires one operator. And last but not least, number 16 is a beetle that is stronger than a gorilla. British researchers discovered that, and get the name here, it just sounds so inviting. The male horned dung beetle. It's found in nearly all parts of the world. There may be one in your bedroom right now. How powerful is it? It can pull 1140 times its own body weight. That's like you pulling five times as much as the new F-450. Again, this is popular mechanics. Now, obviously, we're having a little fun with this, but here's the point. There isn't anything that you can come up with, neither power tool, nor mountain moving machine, nor Avenger superhero, or even more seriously, even a nuclear warhead. None of it can compare with the power of God. It is incomparable. It is immeasurable. You can't pull out your tape and measure it. You can't uh, get it onto a scale and weigh it. You can't break it down to its subatomic particles and analyze it. There is no human category, no normal mode of thought, no material thing from which your experience, from which you can construct it. It is above us, it is beyond us, it is in its own class, it is divine and spiritual, and we cannot even comprehend it without God revealing it to us. To even understand it, we need revelation. This is why Paul prays the way that he does that through the Spirit and through revelation, our eyes might be opened. You see, to apprehend the spiritual world, you must first have the right spiritual equipment. 2020 vision is not enough. Now, for our part, it begins with a readiness, an eagerness, even a hunger to know God that he might be open to, or able to open our eyes spiritually and to grasp a reality that is beyond us. This is the power available to us. But the Apostle Paul does not leave us there. He takes another step to describe it. While you cannot find a human category to describe it, he says it is not only like the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, the power working in you. It is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. This means 
This power is not only available to you, if you are a believer in Jesus, it has already been working in you, even if you're not conscious or aware of it. Incomparable power, okay? Now that leads us to a second question. What exactly is resurrection power? How do we get our hands around this? Do you happen to remember the last funeral that you attended? Now maybe it wasn't an open casket, but think about a funeral that you attended where there was an open casket, or try to remember the last body that you had seen completely lifeless. Can you think of it? Even when our little dog, Ronnie, all like eight or nine pounds of him died this past Christmas, it was still disquieting to see something with life, with presence, now still and lifeless without the rhythmic up and down movement of the chest, drawing in breath and releasing uh, breath. Like, that bothers you, right? It's, it's disturbing. Now, in Ohio, we are cursed with long, sunless winters, right? And I hope we're just about out of this one. But we're also blessed, aren't we? In Ohio, we have arguably the best medical treatment in the United States. You ever thought about that? But every day, every day, with all respect to the wonderful doctors, there are several here, with all respect to the wonderful doctors in our congregation, the best, every day, the best doctors in the world fail. After their best efforts, with the best research, with top-notch methods, to their dismay, their patients decline, fail, expire, and all the other words we use to describe it. They stop breathing. And so this presses the question, doesn't it? What exactly is resurrection power? I found a fascinating article this week by another doctor, a surgeon and researcher by the name of Thomas Miller, and he explored the miracle of Christ's resurrection from a medical angle. He noted this, that the body contains trillions and maybe even 100 trillion cells. Isn't that remarkable? Each of these cells carries out thousands of different chemical reactions. Thus, a bodily resurrection would require some phenomenal power to energize life into all these individual cells, but it would have to do so in a way that specialized nurse cells could resume their unique function, heart cells perform theirs, blood cells and bone cells do theirs, and so on. Now, we could just stop there, right? But, uh, warning here, I'm gonna get a little nerdy, okay? But the details are important. He goes on, consider the heart as just one example. Your heart beats an average of 70 times a minute, if you're a decent athlete, 42 times an hour, 108,000 times a day, and 36,288,000 times a year. And for this to happen, 
Thousands of processes within each cell must act in a coordinated way to ensure that the blood, this is a long sentence, to ensure that the blood entering the right side of the heart is effectively propelled into the lungs, okay, still with me? Where the red blood cells contained in it discharge carbon dioxide, pick up oxygen, following which it turns to the left side of the heart, where it is propelled to the tissues of the rest of the body so that they may receive the precious oxygen they need to sustain their many functions. Did you get all that? This all happens at least every second. In such a smooth fashion, of course, that you and I are not even aware of it. And at the moment that we die, all those processes come to a screeching halt. A bodily resurrection implies that thousands of processes in trillions of cells must be restarted with the unique intricacy and with an unique intricacy and inner coordination that existed before death. It's a lot to say. Now Miller adds, again, if this is not enough, Miller adds, this would require not just incredible power, but what else? Unimaginable knowledge. He concludes by writing this. Even the latest science has not unraveled the complete mystery of each of the cells of our bodies, how they interact, how they talk with one another. But for the resurrection of Jesus to occur, all of the information had to be known in its completeness and totality and known some 2,000 years ago. This is the power of the resurrection. And for you, if you're a believer, that has already been working in your life. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is the power to change, made available to you. Okay, well this all leads to a third question. And here we gotta move now out of the theoretical into the concrete. And the third question is this, well, okay. So if this is true, why then do I feel so weak and powerless all the time? Why do I feel so anemic and spiritually ineffective? Well, first let me say this, I often feel this way. And I struggle with the contradiction that we're reading this morning. And with often the reality in my own life, especially when I'm struggling physically or struggling emotionally or struggling mentally. I really have a hard time grasping the power of God in this way. And I ask these same questions, maybe not in these words, but God, why do I feel so weak? Maybe you feel the same way. Have you ever thrown up your hands to God complaining? Where is this so-called power when I am struggling every day feeling anxious or overwhelmed? Or God, where is this so-called power when I am struggling every day with crushing temptations in sexual sin? Or God, where is this power when I am struggling with explosive anger and hurting those around me? Well, this we can safely conclude, right? Though it is working in us, certainly there is something we must learn to lay hold of it. 
Notice back in verse 18. Paul prayed that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, may be opened up. Like your heart's got these eyes. He's relating the physical to the spiritual. What does your spirit see? And what is, what's the implication of what the prayer? The implication is, is that our eyes can grow dim. Spiritual truth can become clouded. Another metaphor the Bible uses to describe this dynamic is our heart, our heart growing hard or dull. Heart in the Bible does not refer only to emotions, but when the Bible describes the heart, it's talking about the totality of who you are, your intellect, your emotions, your, your will, your inner self. So why do we feel powerless? Well, one reason might be that if we're not able to see spiritually, we may be completely clueless to the realm of a spiritual underworld, a demonic realm, a force that hates everything to do with God and will work feverishly to prevent the power of God and the life of God from taking hold of you. You know, Jesus never regarded Satan as a mere personification of evil or worse yet as a cartoon character. Rather, Jesus likened the devil to a devious thief whom he said comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Conversely, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it with abundance. A second reason we might feel powerless is that maybe you've never considered or maybe your emotions have never been personally affected or moved by what happened to Jesus after his resurrection. You know, if we read the rest of chapter 1, we discover three things that God did with Jesus after his resurrection. Number one, God seated Jesus at his right hand. He exalted him to a place of unquestioned and universal authority. Two, he made Jesus king by bringing everything in heaven and everything on earth under him, including our two greatest enemies, sin and death. Thirdly, he appointed Jesus as head over his church. You know, the church is God's chosen instrument to fill the earth with his glory. And that is a glory seen most profoundly in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. God did this in order to reunite heaven and earth, to bring back the Garden of Eden, to restore the world to its original beauty and design. This is his eternal plan. And God could have done this without us, friends. But for some crazy reason that defies logic, he chooses to do it through his church. Now, what does this really mean for you? This exalted and enthroned uh, and uh, Christ set in this place. See, it's important because this means that nothing, no one, no power, no force can prevent Jesus from fulfilling his promise to raise you from the dead. 
The same power that raised him from the dead will raise you from the dead. This is not a wish like, I, I wish someday to fly to the moon knowing it will never happen. No, this is a sure and certain hope that is rooted in a vision of Jesus. Now, hope, hope, such an important word. Hope is a multifaceted power. Let me say that again. Hope is a multifaceted power, helping us to endure suffering, helping us to retain gratitude in setbacks, helping us to forgive those who have hurt us, helping us to empty ourselves from the resentments that eat us from the inside out, and helping us to even find a thread of joy in loss and grief. That's power. And that is the power of God working in you. I like what Maxie Dunham wrote. Maxie Dunham wrote this, that the call here about this is to bring the working power of God out of the past into the present. To be sure, we are to celebrate the mighty acts of God in history. But that should make us even more aware of Christ as a present power. This is the paramount miracle. That his immeasurable power is available now to heal the sick, to drive out demons, to redeem our sins, to energize our wills, to renew our spirits, to reconcile our relationships, and to bring peace. Let me mention a third reason why we often feel spiritually anemic or ineffective. You know, it's because we lack, we lack spiritual perception. It's like we're in a boxing match and fighting blindfolded. We're, we're blind to our spiritual foe. Or as I said before, our desires to see a resurrected Savior, our, our affections, our loves, our emotions have not been stirred by that. But, but, and this is a, this is a good news, bad news paradigm here. We've not yet really laid the axe to the core of our spiritual blindness. And Paul addresses that in chapter 2. Look at, again, the first three verses of chapter 2 in Ephesians. Again, page 976. In these few verses, Paul asks them to remember. Remember your condition before your spiritual eyes were opened. Here's what he writes. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, or in other words, our natural self and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. Paul says, remember who you were. Remember, you were cut off from God and you were spiritually dead. They were spiritually dead for the same reasons that we become spiritually dead. Notice 
the drift of what he's saying here is that it takes no power to blindly follow the crowd. Do you, do you realize that, right? It takes no power to blindly follow the crowd. And here, especially in America, while we despise the idea of herd mentality, right? The reality is that the way we regard those who dare to ever take a diff different path, the way that we treat them, the way that we regard them, reveals our hypocrisy. We are far more affected by the herd mentality than we ever realize. It takes no power to follow the inclinations of your heart when it always results in self-gratification. Following your own bliss or finding your true self have become the driving mantras in our culture, but rarely do they ever result in self-sacrifice. Rarely do they ever result in giving freely of your time and of your money, and rarely does it ever result of you stepping down and descending in order for others to rise up and ascend. It takes no power to put yourself and your needs first. And notice that Paul even detects the spiritual force that lies behind that self-centered life. Why are we spiritually anemic, friends? At the core, it is because sin and a lack of belief in God deadens our hearts and dims our eyesight. Now, it might help us just for a moment here to just spend a little time on this. I mean, what really is sin? Well, sin is any action or thought or attitude that revolts against or goes against the character of God. It runs over or ignores God's revealed word which exists for our good. For example, sin is acting unjustly when God is just. Our sin is thinking critically of others made in his image when he is only kind. Or sin is using all of my resources and gifts on myself when he is generous to the needy. You see, the cause of our sin is we don't really believe in God. We believe in ourselves. It's our pride. You see, this entails, this entails, unbelief entails acting essentially if God does not exist and making ourselves the arbiters of right and wrong in the universe. And when we do that, we are saying our power is enough. Our wisdom is enough. Our intellect is enough. You see, unbelief deadens our heart and renders us spiritually powerless. And we need someone outside of us to make us spiritually alive. And right, thanks be to God. Paul goes on, right? Thanks be to God. Look at verses 5 and 6. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, did what? Made us alive with Christ, even when we, even when we were dead in transgression. 
It is by grace you have been saved. You see, when you were dead, you were totally incapable of responding spiritually. Your eyes were closed. You did not have the spiritual equipment necessary to see. Without Jesus, we are incapable of pleasing God. We are incapable of doing anything to absolve our guilt. We are incapable of saving ourselves or redeeming our sin. We are incapable of doing anything of true and lasting eternal significance. Dead people, the last time I looked, are powerless. Yet here's what the Bible is saying. When we were in that condition, through Jesus, God made you alive by his grace. He gave you the power to see and gave you the power to respond and gave you the power to spiritually apprehend reality and gave you the ability to receive his power. Okay. All these questions now drive us to the concluding question, which is this. How then do I lay hold of God's power? And the answer is very simple. By exchanging your weakness for his power. It all begins when we admit that we are spiritually powerless. It is the easiest thing in the world, and it is the hardest thing in the world. It is the easiest thing in the world because it is open to anyone without qualification, based on age, or physical strength, or intelligence, or personal beauty, or race, or gender. But it's the hardest thing in the world because you have to admit your weakness, that you can't do it on your own. And by the way, we need more than just a little nudge from God. Sometimes we think, okay, just a little bit of me and a little bit of God. No, you're radically dead without Jesus. You can't do it in your own. You don't need just a little itty bitty crutch. What you need is life support. Simply put, admit your weakness to receive his power. Jesus said it this way, blessed are the poor in spirit. And others have said literally, blessed are those who recognize that they are morally bankrupt. They have nothing to offer God by way of themselves. For they shall receive the kingdom of God. In the moment when you recognize that I am morally bankrupt is the moment that you are closest to the kingdom of God. The dynamic of finding strength in weakness is how the Christian life begins. And it is also how the Christian life is sustained. For believers, a simple application of this, of this message is to realize that God loves you enough and is big enough to keep bringing circumstances and things into your life to remind you, you are not in charge. And you cannot control people or things or circumstances. And when in that moment, when you come to the end of yourself and you realize you're totally powerless, and you say, God, thank you. You're in control. You are in charge. This is his way of keeping, of reminding us, bringing us back to receiving his power. Let me finish with the following story that is real sticky. But I mean, it's very memorable. 
is told by Tim Keller. And it's about a minister who was in Italy. Minister that was there in Italy. And, and he saw the grave of a man there who was not a, a Christian, not a believer, and was actually completely against Christianity, but also a little afraid of it. So the man had a huge stone slab put over his grave so he would not have to be raised from the dead in case there was a resurrection from the dead. Hedging his bets. He had insignias put all over the slab. I do not want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in him. Well, apparently when he was buried, an acorn happened to be to fall into the grave. And that acorn had grown up through, over many years, the acorn had grown up through the grave and split the slab. It was now a tall, towering oak tree. The minister looked at it and asked, if an acorn, which has the power of biological life in it, can split a slab of this magnitude, what can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in my life? in a person's life. Keller went on to say this, the minute that you decide to receive Jesus as your savior, when you confess him as Lord, in that moment, the power of the Holy Spirit comes into your life. It's the power of the resurrection, the same thing that raised Jesus from the dead. And Keller then says, think of the things, think of the things that you see as immovable slabs in your life. Your bitterness, your insecurity, your fears, your self-doubts. Those things can be split and they can be rolled off. The more you know him, the more you grow into the power of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the moments that my friends and I can spend together on this Easter morning here in our capacity to freely gather, to worship you without fear. What a great gift that is. And we thank you for this day to retell the story of when Christ Jesus, the Son of God, rose from the dead and changed everything. And God, I know that a lot of us are probably thinking lots of things right now. And let us, as we move into responding to the message, let us voice and verbalize and echo our prayers and our fears and our praise through the gift of music and the gift of song. Amen.
shall find all breath. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hands till he returns. Cause me
ready to proclaim it? this cross over here and on Friday evening as a way to symbolize uh, our sins being nailed to the cross with Christ um, we were invited to uh, during the service to come up to the cross and stick our thumb into a uh, bowl of red paint and to just splotch it on there as a way of uh, symbolizing Christ's crucifixion and his death and our sins being nailed to the cross with Christ. I got to do it, suck my thumb in there, got as much red paint as, on there as I could, and put a big blotch there on the left side of the horizontal bar. And remembering particularly my moments of lack of love, moments of being overly critical and overly judgmental, um, times of selfishness, where I just know, I just know that my sin, my choices, my decisions really hurt God and really hurt others. Um, so between now and Sunday morning, and it was, of course, the, the, the cross was filled with red blotches all over. Most of the attenders that night did it. And, and, um, and this morning, all, they're all gone. And uh, it's just simply a way of saying that the death of Christ was a sacrifice that he made to God the Father. And when God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, what he said was, is your sacrifice for the sins of others is acceptable to me. I accept it. And on that basis, we have forgiveness. And on that basis, we have eternal life. Jesus said to know him is to have eternal life. We really do believe the resurrection occurred. We don't think it's just a, um, a metaphor. We don't think it's just a, 
a, a story, a, a fictional story that has significant meaning, we believe the resurrection actually happened. We believe that you could have gone, if you were there that morning, you could have gone up to that tomb. You could have touched that stone. You could have looked inside and seen the empty tomb. And as Pastor Nick shared this morning, the historical evidence speaks powerfully. And the resurrection of Christ would hold up in any court of law the evidence for the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus was that strong. Was that strong? Okay, a couple things before we go. Again, welcome to all of you that are visitors. Please pick up the gift bag on the way out. We thank you for coming. Next week, we're going to start a short series through a small book called Titus. And it's really an important message for today, particularly for the day that we live in. The series is called The Power of Doing Good. The Power of Doing Good. And... Um, Finally, for a benediction, and if you are new, one of our traditions here, if you feel comfortable doing it, you can raise your hands as a way of saying, I'd like to receive the grace that God is giving to us. Here is today's benediction from Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoy your day. God bless.